is PolyRequest, live from the heart of Brooklyn. PolyRequest is an hour-long talk show about everything in and relating to technology. Starring two techno experts, Eric Newman, hi, and Tyler Dinner. Hey there. This week's episode, Internet for All. Hello, everybody. Welcome to yet another Polar Quest. My name is Eric Newman, and to the left of me is the wonderful Tyler Dinner. Hello. How are you? I'm excellent. How's it going, Eric? I'm doing quite well. We were gone for two whole weeks while I was in Florida, and that while. really... <laughs> How was that? Well, it's, I mean, Florida, Florida is Florida, but I'm very happy to say... That takes a little bit longer than I thought. <laughs> From the horrible state of Florida and all of the crazy people therein, my mother turned 60 and I had to drive, not drive, I flew down there. I started in Fort Lauderdale, worked my way all the way up to Gainesville, and then flew out of Orlando. 10 days, 600 miles, and a lot of craziness. A lot of humidity. A lot of humidity. I sweat through all the clothes that I brought through on the trip in the first three days. (laughs) I was just like, I've, I've, I've ruined another day's worth of clothes in 30 minutes. Thanks, Florida. Well, you Not, can go to Walmart and get new ones down there. Oh, right. Or, or um, BJ's Club. <laughs> yeah, BJ's Club in New York means something else. Uh, anyway. <laughs> oh, that's right. That sound you hear is from our studio audience. I keep them in a Tupperware container during the week. They made my luggage heavy, so I had to keep them up here. And they're happy to see us again. Unlike the last trip I took, I didn't make the mistake of taking the recording equipment because they, it, did, it did actually make my luggage heavy. There was a risk of damaging the equipment, and I never actually produced anything while I was gone because I was very sick. And you uh, make a profile because they don't know what the recording equipment is. Sorry? And you make a profile because they don't know what the recording equipment is. No, oh, well, we don't have to talk about what it is. We just have recording equipment that we need to use. Anyway, <laughs> the point is, is that it was it made my luggage heavy because I was taking all of my uh, dildos and sex toys with me, and uh, you can't take both. I think no, that's what I learned. It's one or the other. It sucks because you can't record yourself with the dildos and sex toys. No, I can't. I mean, one, the dildo kind of looks like a microphone, but yeah. it doesn't. Yeah, but when you put it next to your mouth, it's something else. Anyway. Um, yeah, and I am really off track today. Uh, how have you been, Tyler? I've missed you. I haven't seen you in like a month. It's been a while. I'm good. Um, things are going well. Uh, technology-wise, I'm in a good state, working on some nice node, nice and organized. Um, nothing too hectic. Uh, physically, I'm quite sunburned from the beach yesterday. Nice, nice. I am, I am much tanner now that I've been in Florida for a week and a half. Excellent. Uh, did, did you do all the uh, walking that you're normally doing up here? Never? No, no, I didn't actually because my, my trip was mostly driving and I, I had to go. I had to bake. Basically, I traveled about, I mean, it doesn't sound too much, 60 miles a day on average. That's not exactly what it was. It was like three days in a place and you drive 150 miles and two days in that place and you drive 150 miles. And uh, yeah. Uh, so I wasn't able to do the walking that I usually that I usually am known for in New York. But however, uh, between Florida's like heat and humidity and flatness, it was not. I walked four miles from my dad's office to where he lives in Fort Lauderdale, and I was beat. I did it at like four o'clock in the afternoon. 
I've walked to Coney Island from Bushwick, Tyler. That's 13 miles. <laughs> I've done a four-borough, 16-mile circuit in five-degree weather. And, sorry, three-borough, four-bridge, 16-mile circuit in five-degree weather. And four miles in peak summer in Florida killed me. Oh. <laughs> well, the audience seems to be happy about that. What beach did you go to? Did you go to Rockaway? Uh, I did. Uh, I'm not sure where. I think just regular Rockaway at 106th Street. It was a good time. Real good time. We're celebrating a friend's birthday. Nice. Nice. Everyone. We've had from Memorial Day through the 4th, we've had a lot of birthdays. I guess that's who we're friends with. Yeah. A bunch of Geminis. Yeah. And what comes after Gemini? I have no idea. I don't know. Libra? Uh, Well, while I've been gone, a lot of stuff, of course, has been happening in the city that never sleeps, like... Train derailments. A second New Jersey transit train stalled at Penn Station on Saturday. Second, I I remember I woke up on Saturday. I was still in Florida. And I said, hey, guys, I got to go. I got to go to the airport and take take the air train and two subways back to my apartment. And uh, (laughs) standard. I wake up, I have breakfast, I read this, I read that one, one New Jersey transit train had to like go backwards in Penn Station to get out. And then by the time I land, I read another one, a second train. And this one, I think was, uh, it says New Jersey Transit, it got stuck in the, in the uh, Hudson tubes, which are 100 years old. It says, uh, the train stalled around 4.45 p.m., a New Jersey Transit train and Amtrak train carrying close to 1,000 people between them got stuck in a Penn Station tunnel earlier Saturday, officials said. NJ Transit train disabled and was stuck behind the Amtrak train, which disabled just before 11.30. Wow. The New Jersey Transit train, which could not move forward and carried about 800 people, had to move backwards to Secaucus. Passengers have exited the train. The Amtrak train disabled in the Hudson River Tunnel, which you don't want to be stuck under the Hudson River. That has got to be scary. The Amtrak train disabled in the Hudson River Tunnel because of an overhead power issue. Yeah, it's 100 years old. You know what? I, I, oh, uh, let's see. Oh, we heard something, and then the engine just went dead. We were stuck it for an hour without power. And then, they, and then sent another car to rescue us, pull us out, and then there was a problem with that car, the passenger recalled. So they had to rescue that one and send another car. With no air conditioning. No air conditioning, no electricity. You're stuck in a metal tube under the river. Those poor people. Yes, this is not the first time that that's happened, actually. One of my friends, he lives in Austin, uh, you met him, has a story about his grandfather like got stuck in the Hudson tubes 80 years ago, and now he always flies. And I, (laughs) you don't want, like I said, you don't want to be stuck in an undersea tunnel or under-river tunnel uh, because there's no hope. Do, Do you think you could walk through it? Uh, logically, yeah, but I'm sure they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me. I mean, no, they won't let you. I've always wondered, like, if you could walk through the Lincoln or the Holland Tunnels, um, or, you know, if it's an overhead power issue, that means that there's no third rail, which should mean that you won't have a risk of electrocution if you just walk on the tracks. Oh, well, it's overhead power issue. Maybe that's a separate issue from the third rail power. No, it's one, it's usually one or the other. You usually have the overhead wires, the catenary that are, that's like a hundred year old technology, Ah. or you have the third rail, which is like 90 year old technology. Yeah. So anyway, uh, and that's part of the, ah, where's the, uh, that's part of the summer of hell in Penn Station. (laughs) 
And I didn't even come up with that phrase. Motor Repairs Works dubbed the Summer of Hell started at Penn Station this week to address critical repairs, as in what happens when you don't upgrade your infrastructure for 60 years. Uh, I got to say, if there's one thing that, that hasn't lost its, its edge, especially in New York, it's, it's our stupid news subtitles. They're great. What do you mean? Like the Post? Yeah. Well, the Post always has the best headlines. They have the worst stories with the best headlines. Yeah. What, what comes the, to your What comes the, to your attention? There was a Tiger Woods headline that was so good. I, what was I, it? It's like Eye of the Tiger or something like that because the big black eye. Oh wow! Yeah, that's jeez. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh no, it was DUI of the Tiger. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well let's oh, get on with the show. God. We're about ten minutes in, and that means it's time for our GitHub issues of the week. Except Christian isn't here, so we're going to do Tyler's. It's time for our plus one of the week. Still haven't figured out what theme song we're going to use, but we will. We will. (laughs) Our plus ones of the week are when we send out our well wishes and acknowledgments of awesomeness to people in other organizations and technology. Our first plus one of the week comes from Facebook or goes to Facebook for announcing a new $200 all-in-one VR headset. Take it away, Tyler. Uh, so Facebook announced, as Eric said, a new $200 all-in-one VR headset. This is going to be uh, a great option for urging in kind of a new genre uh, of mid-level VR stuff. Right now, you basically have super high-end premium uh, connected to a computer, wired up headsets that cost uh, $600 to $1,000. Um, or you have cheaper ones that you basically just strap in a mobile phone and uh, you wear a visor on your face with. Uh, the, this one's going to be all in one, so you don't have to put a phone in it, uh, which means that it's going to it's going to be able to have a little more power. It's not going to be able to just generate, you know, use up your phone's battery and be limited to whatever type of phone you have. And uh, it's totally new things. We we don't really know a lot of details on what it's going to entail, whether or not it's going to get a lot of its stuff uh, more wirelessly, or you're going to have to load onto it. No one really knows for sure, or whether it's even going to have movement tracking. But it's a very promising new venture into something that's more affordable and attainable, but a little more high-end than what we normally have right now. Very interesting. Now, this is the first thing that they've really produced since uh, buying Oculus? Yeah, so the Oculus is still going strong, but it's one of the premium, super expensive ones. They keep and how much is an Oculus? On that. They just dropped the price for the second time this year. I think it's now like $400, but you still have to buy like three or three to $500 worth of other stuff, and you have to have a computer... That's at least $1,000. Oh, so this won't work with your phone? Uh, no, no, no. The Oculus is tied to your computer. So it's one of the, the two high-end headsets are the Oculus and the HTC Vibe for the most part. And those both require a super powerful computer, and it's got to be wired onto that computer the whole time now, you're using it. Now, do you think this is where VR is peaking and it's going to go back into the cave that it did at, in the mid-'90s? You know, Because these like 3D and VR and all of these technologies, they come out for about five years. They do a nice little dance, and they realize people realize they're not viable, and they go back. I think 3D's uh, on the decline right now. And 3D, 3D's always been a fad that's been in and out since even the 80s. And the but I, I remember in the mid-90s, uh, speaking of Fort Lauderdale, in Blockbuster Golf and Games, they had a VR headset, and, and I, I, I used it in, in, like, 95 or 96. It was hard. I mean, it was very heavy. It was a giant, like, clunky, very big black device. Speaking of dildos, but... Um, <laughs> it, it was very, uh, but the software for it was—I mean, it was really, really. Uh, uh, I, I, what do I say? Um, 
not basic, but very rudimentary. Uh, and then it went away. And now it's come back in a very much a very big way. This might be, Facebook might actually get a consumer level uh, device here, but will that be the thing that allowed, that really democratizes the technology that says anyone can now make VR content or anyone can at least consume it? And then the next step is to decrease the price for the production, cap- uh, the, the production tools? Or is this just another device that no one's going to use and then in five years you won't hear about it? Uh, so for the most part, this isn't going to be the device that makes VR more accessible. Right now, the, the more accessible ones are going to stay there, which are the ones where you just strap an Android phone onto your head and you're in VR. Um, those are always going to be the cheaper ones, but for now, but for these units, they're going to be a little more of a, a mix of the premium high-end ones, which offer like more gaming and whatnot. Um, so there'll there'll be a forend of that that's that's a little more uh, you know universal to people. But um, as far as comparing the platforms and stuff, like I said, 360's been around or 3D's been around since the 80s, and it's been an in and out fad kind of thing. Yeah, um, ever since the uh, the money for nothing music video. Yeah. <laughs> But VR uh, hasn't. Yeah, they had some VR stuff in the 90s, but uh, this is the first time where VR has actually come where we have uh, lifelike you know, graphics and actual movies playing on VR and stuff, which is why it's only growing. And the, uh, the real deal is that most of the content creators are still just getting a grip on, on how to really harness its power and, and do the best things with it. Wow. Yeah, it's so a I real sign of the grow. times. There was a... Uh, somebody predicted that it's the numbers are just astounding what they're predicting for it. It's going to be like it's going to be bigger than TV. Well, after this last election, I refuse to trust polls and projections like that. So that's <laughs> uh, you know. Um, anyway, on the heels of that, before we get to your next plus one, I just have to mention uh, Japan had a first VR porn festival on July fourth. It was canceled due to overcrowding. <laughs> Yeah, it's awesome. uh, it's a, it's pretty it's pretty bad. I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. The immense popularity of virtual reality reality pornography in Japan led the country's first ever VR porn festival being canceled last month amid crowd trouble. The adult Fe- adult VR fest 01, not like 2001, but just numbers 01, showcased the latest developments in VR pornography, including a variety of terrifying looking VR sex accessories. Sex accessories. That was a that was a missed pun opportunity from the mirror. Come on, uh, the event took place in the uh, in the Akihabara region of Tokyo and was reported uh, by, uh, was reported on by Japanese blogger Izo Quadruple Zero. Anyway, and then it has a very graphic picture of somebody uh, looks like they're having sex with a fake person. Well, hey, it's good news for VR. You know, if porn's involved, you know, technology is going to get pushed to its limits. So you just you essentially just put on the VR headset and uh, and then you attach yourself to a body that's basically a flashlight and you do whatever you want. Is that what that is? Uh, I mean, I think all the attachments are optional. The foundation of VR porn is just you wearing a VR headset. Yeah, but you don't want to be like, oh, I'm you know I'm with this girl in VR and then you know I I'm actually anyway. Getting off track. It was canceled. <laughs> and this is why it was canceled, because you have a lot Florida of people... What do to your mind? <laughs> <laughs> the internet is a terrible thing. Um, Guys, don't go to Florida. <laughs> yeah, no, I've... Uh, they, they have shirts in Florida that say IP in pools. People are proud of that. 
anyway, um, I found out, you know, interesting about Florida. I found out that there's so much emphasis on where you're from in Florida. And I think that's because it's a dead-end state. The only place you really go from Florida is a hole in the ground. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah it wasn't that funny. But uh, seriously, I, I've noticed, I think it's like a lack of culture and the lack of it being a real place and everyone's really from somewhere else that so much emphasis is based on where you're from in Florida. And uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, let's keep this show going with our second plus one of the week. Our second plus one goes to the company that invented the concept of plus one Google, for adding some incredible features in its newest updates, as Tyler says, listed here. And then you link me, which I haven't opened, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> what is it? Uh, well, the, the biggest one that I'd like to say is they have a, uh, a JavaScript and CSS efficiency tool, which will tell you the percentage of your JavaScript and CSS which is being unused in your code. That's actually very good. Yeah, I was super impressed to see that. Now, I've had issues with DevTools recently, but that's because I typically develop on Chrome Canary, which is probably a bad practice. It's better than when you used to develop on Firefox. <laughs> 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 hey, Firefox is a great browser, I'll have you know. Um, <laughs> Trying to work with someone as my developer front-end partner. <laughs> Hey, I mean, no, this is I, different. I, What's wrong with this? Why are you using Firefox? I, I firmly, I've Open always said, I will continue to say, Gecko is the best renderer. It, it renders the best to what you type. And even with WebKit, there's some massaging that you have to do when stuff doesn't line up properly. Now, in the, in the modern world of layout, which has only really taken hold in the last year or two with Flexbox at gaining wide support, that those kind of off-by-one or off-by-two issues are, 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 are very few and far between. But... You should just use absolute positioning more. <laughs> no, I know no. you hate that. No, I don't actually. There's a lot of there's uh, there are very good uses for that type of positioning, but it's you. I don't know. Anyway, for a lot of positioning. Yeah, yeah. that's funny. Uh, <laughs> that was that, that. Yeah, like the VR porn conference. Anyway, <laughs> they're funny. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so oh yeah, I was going to mention it's probably a bad idea to develop in, in Chrome Canary because what I've noticed they've been doing in the last few weeks is that they've really been messing with developer tools. I don't mm. know. This isn't the nightly build. This is beta. I don't know why they don't QA the stuff before it gets to beta and they realize, oh wait, if you hit inspect element while the page is loading, the whole browser crashes. Why Why haven't they tested something like, I understand some things may not work because I'm on a beta channel. However, something like that, something like that would have been answered in the first 30 minutes of QA if they have a QA team. Yeah. So, whatever. Um, anything else out of their uh, dev tools update? Let's see. It says full page screenshots. Whoop-de-doo. My... We can all take screenshots. That's uh, actually that's actually very important. And on the screen, they show you taking a screenshot of a responsive web page, which is difficult to do. It's uh, oh, there was a, I think I see what you mean. There's a program called Little Little Snitcher. No, sorry, that that's a firewall. Uh, it's a little snapper. Hold on, uh, snap Little okay. Snapper. It's called Little. No, hold on. There's this program called Little Snapper. And all it does is it takes screenshots of web pages. I had to use this for my portfolio at pneumonium.com. Uh, but what happens is that there's it, it basically is an embedded WebKit, but it, it it doesn't it has some issues and it's another program 
Chrome just built this capability right in, which is fantastic. And if it works with the responsive view, and if hopefully when you take the screenshot, it doesn't have the response, the, the mad in the, in the toolbars, so it actually just looks like the page, that would be immensely helpful because I don't even think Little Snapper can do that. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize that that's what they were talking about. From the very top to like when you scroll all the way down to the bottom. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's very cool. Uh, block requests. Sounds good. Block request URL, block request domain. That'll help my uh, auto-like scripts on, on uh, OkCupid work better. <laughs> help your safe space be safer. <laughs> exactly. Um, step over async wait. Interesting. If you're uh, really into the brand new tools. Yes, up until now. And async and await, I think, are even like ES2017. I don't even think they're ES2016. They were, uh, yeah, that's ES7. Up until now, trying to step through code like the snippet below, which we won't read on the air, was a headache. Just, just take our word for it, or Google's word for it. Uh, you'll be in the middle of the stepping over whatever. Uh, you can step over those asynchronous wait stuff. Uh, and is what else? Uh, that's it. Oh, and a unified command menu, because again, they've decided to change the user interface. They're good at that. They're good at not keeping things consistent. They made Drive look a lot better the last few weeks. You know, uh... Uh, they will eventually get design, but I think they're getting closer. <laughs> someday. Someday. We're not expecting that out of them, though, you know? Well, <laughs> like, you, know, I, you know, it's funny because somebody that, I used to, somebody that I used to work with at Condé Nast actually works for Google, and he is a fantastic front-end developer. He is, I mean, he is really, really good. And I, and I, like, I'm happy that he works there, not just so I can say I know someone at Google, but because uh, hopefully he will let them have better effing design and it doesn't look like garbage. <laughs> well, it's kind of like how AWS just finally updated their you know, front end after like 16 years. That's well, true. Yeah, that's true. I think Amazon updated that. their their front end in the last like in the last year after 12. Snopes, I was reading something on Snopes earlier. They just updated too. Oh, wow. Finally. That. The only thing that's still hanging on is Craigslist, which is fine. <laughs> fine. Okay. There's a, there's a couple others, too. There was a big old uh, article recently on, like, why the some of the most the biggest web pages on the Internet are such ugly designs. It's designed by committee? I don't know. Reddit came up with that. Oh, well, if you All find that, that again, I'd love to read it. I think the answer is it's designed by committee. You can't have too many people making these decisions or else you'll end up with nothing. You'll never make everybody happy. So just make most people not that happy. <laughs> no, you just do it. No, you, you have to be given the executive control to do what you want, and then the other people just have to like it or figure out what they like about it. As long as you're staying within the guidelines. Every designer has guidelines. You have brand guidelines, you have media guidelines, you have print guidelines, everything. There are many guidelines that a designer has, but it shouldn't be designed by committee because then everyone, because then you don't want someone who has no idea what anything should look like chiming in because they're or showing it to their friend. Anyway, you can tell I have a problem about this. Um, let's go to our next ah, plus one of the week. The third plus one of the week goes to the internet for coming together to support one of two versions of net neutrality. Because it goes two versions. To you. Because, there, the, as we've always mentioned, there are two definitions of net neutrality that mean opposites of each other. So, this <laughs> definition of net neutrality that gets the plus one is everyone trying... When, when I was on vacation, I didn't do anything, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, everyone rallying together to try to preserve the free and open internet as that era of the internet is coming to a close. I don't really think it's going to stay. It's impossible. There's too much corporate control and centralization. 
And that's why I wish Christian were here so he could tell me that I'm wrong. But since he's not, no one can. Well, we can only hope. Yeah, and we'll talk more about net neutrality news in a minute. Uh, and then the last plus one was to uh, Don Don, Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> why is that? This I mean, isn't a political show, Tyler. I know, that's why this I is, say hee hee on the net. This is supposed to be people's reprieve from politics. It doesn't matter where along the spectrum you are, you can still listen to us, as long <laughs> as you like computers. Nothing <sighs> happened. Okay, good. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't want to, yeah, um, okay, well then, uh, what's the next story? Let me see if I have that pulled up. There was, I didn't have it pulled up, but I have the other thing pulled up there. Hold on, ah, you know, you think you have this all together. You didn't hit command K to make that thing a link? Ugh. Ah, there we go. Okay. Nope, that was the wrong one. Damn it. It was this one. I had them on other tabs. Okay, here we go. Uh, so we talked a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> like I should edit that out. We talked a couple of weeks ago about WannaCry, that horrible ransomware that's ravaged the internet and has affected many large uh, systems, many large networks, like the NHS in England. It's affected many things in our government. It's affected things across the world. Unfortunately, the email provider that they were using to recover the lost data or the encryption keys for the lost data was disabled, meaning that if you did pay them, you'd have no way of sending them the money, and then they'd have no way of retrieving it or sending you the data to get your, uh, get, sorry, sending you the key to get your data back. In other words, you're screwed. So let's hear it from our news department. New money on presents news to you. The internet. About a month ago, the internet had seen the worst ransomware attack in history. Called WannaCry, this malware has infected targets large and small, from your parents' home computer to national health services worldwide. However, the email company used by these hackers called Postio say they have disabled the nefarious email account used, thereby removing the only way the ransomers have a way of retrieving your data. While obviously the blackmailers were illegally using Postio, disabling victims' ability to pay the ransomers and get their data back is incredibly bad. Postio reminds users of the unlikelihood of any positive outcome even dealing with these ransomers. So if your computer has been compromised with WannaCry, there is currently no way to recover these files. So what does this mean for computer security going forward? Only time will tell. And so many Americans are afraid of what happens next. We at least know the world still dawns and the truth marches on. And that's why this has been News to Use. Brought to you by Nemodian. Yeah, you're screwed. Excellent. As far as I can tell, I, I mean, that's really, really bad. And I don't even know if WannaCry has been solved. Yeah, it's uh, some rough stuff for people. Yeah, and I mean, it could still be going on. I know there was that command and control domain that they disabled, which is really good. But if your computer ha- got hosed and you can't get your data back because Postio disabled their email account, well, then that's really bad. So, good luck. Yeah. 
I'm sorry, guys. Uh, on on Tuesday, no, no, this was not. Uh, there's a 60-character code made up of letters and digits genera- generated by the malware, which is presumably unique to each infection. That way, the hacker can release the specific key needed to unlock. Excuse me. That individual victim's files. That process is not possible now. <laughs> that's from that's from motherboard. Oh man, <laughs> I'm so sorry. But that is, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's all that that's that's all there is to say about that. If you happen to get Wanna Cry, you are you are hosed. I'm very, very sorry. On the heels of that. Uh, there's another story about our continuing cafefe of Theresa May muttering the internet. Except there's no news because I'm not going to play the jingle because we already did. Usually I have them reversed, but I think that got old. So, uh, yeah. So the thing is, is that Theresa May hasn't actually done anything. Do you want me to do the intro? Do you think that really makes it better? <laughs> if I did it again and then stop, I don't... Oh, I think you can just go normal with this one. Okay. Well... This doesn't actually have anything to do directly with Miss May. Uh, it, it's well, it's from this. This story comes from another country of the Commonwealth, though, and uh, the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Organization. So she definitely has her finger in this pie. This comes from Australia, and uh, Ma- Malcolm Turnbull says laws of Australia trump the laws of mathematics as tech giants are told to hand over their encrypted messages. This is we're. This is an exercise in emotional reasoning. Messaging apps like WhatsApp and iMessage would be forced to hand over the contents of encrypted messages under laws being proposed by the Australian government. The Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull unveiled the new laws on Friday, saying they had been modeled, or inspired by, Britain's Investigatory Powers Act, which requires Snoopers Charter, which requires companies to decrypt communications in some circumstances. However, he generated controversy, or controversy, when challenged on whether it was possible to fully crack down on encryption, saying the laws of Australia overrode the laws of mathematics that govern how encryption work. Quote, not going to do the accent. Well, the laws of Australia can prevail in Australia, I'm assure, I, I can assure you of that. The laws of mathematics are very commendable, but the only law that applies in Australia is the law of Australia. I wonder if next he'll attack the laws of physics and then float away. He said, he said, when asked how the proposals would stop terrorists and criminals from moving to encryption software not controlled by major tech companies, you think? Australia's plans are the latest effort to crack down on encrypted communications. Critics say WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook, and other apps like Telegram and iMessage give criminals a safe space to hide. Quote, I'm, and this is emotional reasoning. Where you, and emotional reasoning, just by the way, is when you don't argue with facts, you argue with emotions. You can't really argue against emotions because they're not rational. He says, I am not a cryptographer, but what we are seeking to do is secure their ex- assistance. They have to face up to their responsibility. They can't just wash their hands of it and say it's got nothing to do with them, Turnbull said with how, when asked how the encryption should be broken. George Brandis, the Australian Attorney General, said that the UK's spy agency, GHCQ, had told him that it was possible to break end-to-end encryption. That's, that's good. Yeah. Last Wednesday, I met with the chief cryptographer, chief cryptographer at GCHQ, the government communication headquarters in the UK, and he assured me that this was feasible, he said. Facebook said that, quote, weakening encryption systems for law enforcement would mean weakening it for everyone. 
Now, it's funny that the chief, chief cryptographer of the GCHQ is for breaking end-to-end encryption, while the former chief cryptographer of GCHQ is trying to preserve it. Ooh. Yeah, as I transition to the next article. One I day, I have to get, like, a stand guy. or something for this computer. Um, I think I understand why the new guy got his job. Exactly. Former GCHQ chief, quote, You can't uninvent encryption. The f- <laughs> Appearing on this morning's Today program, which is somewhere in England, Robert Hannigan described the technology as, quote, overwhel- encryption, overwhelmingly a good thing, saying, quote, it keeps us all safe and secure. Following recent terror attacks, Theresa May, there she is, claimed tech firms offer terrorists a place to hide. But Hannigan said that the solution isn't to water down encryption in apps like WhatsApp. Maybe that's why he got fired. I don't advocate building in back doors, he said. It's not a good idea to weaken security for everyone in order to tackle a minority. Instead, the police, and he's no longer quoting, uh, instead, the police and intelligence agencies should target the phones or laptops used by the people abusing encryption, he argued. End-to-end encryption is more secure than normal encryption because the firms providing the service can't decrypt the data. Quote, you can't uninvent end-to-end encryption. You can't legislate it away. Yet, we will try. And then, so we're losing encryption, and then soon we'll stop, uh, we'll lose our ability to have and and serve our own stuff on the internet. And then we won't be allowed to tell secrets. And then, well, there's no secrets, because privacy is dead. And the more we keep saying privacy is dead, and the more that we want to pry into each other's lives, the less and less privacy we have. So... If we all held hands and said, you know what, I've got some information that I don't want anyone to know, and you've got some information that you don't want anyone to know, and our country was founded on the, on the premise that if we have stuff the government doesn't need to know, then they don't get to know. Because other countries have had tyrannical governments that snoop on their populace. That's why we have the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. Yep. So, Life, liberty, and pursuit of property was what this culture is really founded on. Property meant privacy. Right, but also the fact that there's no the reasonable search and seizure and the uh, right to not incriminate yourself. The Fourth and Fifth Amendments prevent yep. this type of governmental overreach. But yet, they, they, they already found a way around it. They've already found a way to kill an American citizen. Ah, Tyler, not politics. You started this one. I started this one. Okay. That's why I was saying I could, I could, I, I could go on a rant, but I really will not because this is not a political show. Also, with your mind straight out of Florida right now, you just don't even want to go anywhere with politics. I mean, I, I might be coming down off of my 10-day binge on painkillers, but that's another story. Uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's turn to our continuing coveve of net neutrality. Oh, I didn't know I could do that. I just moved, instead of hitting a button, I moved a column on my jingle board. Net neutrality. I am really bad. But see, this is what happens when I take a week off. I get too jittery with the jingles, and it's not. Um, <laughs> on April 22nd... Oh, sorry. Oh, I misread that. In April, 22 small cable for- providers signed a letter to the FCC asking for the end of net neutrality, writing that the policy imposed onerous burdens on their business. FCC chairman Ajit Pai has latched onto this. Since he was named chairman in January, he's been touting the damage that net neutrality could do to regional mom-and-pop internet providers like Verizon and and Comcast, and cited this letter as proof when announcing plans to reverse net neutrality and its classification of internet providers under a legal statute known as Title II. Quote, 
Heavy-handed regulations are especially tough on new entrants and small businesses that don't have the armies of lawyers and compliance officers that large, well-established companies do. He's not wrong. So, if we want to encourage smaller competitors to enter into the broadband marketplace or expand, we must end Title II. I don't think so. These ISPs are, by and large, quite small. They include regional cable and telephone companies, municipal broadband providers, and and fixed wireless internet companies that deliver service to the home. All eight of them that exist. Right. Then there are obviously are larger ones like Sonic that has about 100,000 subscribers in California. Did you ever have Sonic when you lived in Cali? No. Okay. There's Grand County Internet Services in Colorado, uh, about 60 miles outside of Denver. It's run by two people, a father and daughter team, and has just 1,000 customers. Oh, Ajit's got to love this. Quite a few of these smaller internet providers have taken issue with the FCC's net neutrality rules. This is not just because of the rule's core tenants, no blocking websites, no throttling internet speeds, no demanding payments for access, which many small providers say they support. Instead, they're concerned about being forced to spend tens of thousands of dollars proving to the FCC that they're actually following the rules. He has a point that this might be an example of of, of bloated bureaucracy. However... This is also the type of argument that would be used to remove a possibly useful restrict- or regulation on the Internet to prevent, to prevent ISPs from delivering the Internet to you like they deliver television, which is what he, they want. He's basically suggesting that you cut off someone's head to fix their broken leg. Well, no. I think that, like I said, I think he wants to preserve, he wants to preserve the model of that the government doesn't really – this government is neutral on the net. net. That's the other net neutrality. But the thing is that what will happen are continual mergers. We've already seen a few mergers in the last year or so in, in ISPs. Uh, and then it'll, you'll get internet websites like you'll get cable channels. Yeah, and so which, which would hurt those small and mom-and-pop distributors because they have to pay more to get their stuff. Sure. Not, not necessarily because I think they have peering agreements and stuff with other, with other hosts. But it would be a way of saying that Comcast can offer a, an internet service to you for $10 a month. And if you stay on these five websites, you can get a gigabit down for $10 a month, but you can only go to Facebook, YouTube, and Pornhub. Yeah. And Netflix. And Snapchat. And Instagram. And Google. And and so how does that help the small mom and pop? It doesn't. But if you're with one of these small mom and pop uh, companies, and they'll either be purchased by a larger company, or you'll be one of the few lucky people that lives in an area where the internet traffic isn't discriminated. So, but basically, you proved my point where I said it's, it's like doing something completely irrelevant to try to solve a different problem. It's another, I would say this is yet another way that the government is going to work at the hands of big business while trying to masquerade them as help for everybody. Nice. So, well, and then what's funny... Like, don't join the climate agreement because it could hurt the coal workers. Well, the climate agreement, that's another example of a, a potentially bloated bureaucracy where you can be – the cost – and we're going to talk about this again later when we talk about accessibility, that the cost to comply may be more money than you have to do your service. And may, that might actually kill your business is the compliance. So I totally understand where they're coming from from that perspective. But when that argument is being used to help Comcast and Verizon, I don't, I don't really care. True. What, yeah. what they say is um, – Oh, here, actually. The Verge called eight smaller internet providers to find out whether they'd been impacted by net neutrality, and the answers were mixed. Multiple respondents, when asked if Title II was hurting them, gave an unqualified no. Mark Jen, the chief technical officer of a small internet provider in California named Common, 
not to be confused with the rapper, was founded last year by a group of former Square employees that said, said that complying with net neutrality doesn't require any work. Quote, the default configuration of all the networking equipment is to follow net neutrality, Jen says. While net neutrality sounds like rules and regulations, it's actually just saying everyone has to run stuff in the default mode, which is as fast as possible and great for everybody. That is not a technical answer, I'm sorry. Which is as, well, how fast is your internet? Hey, right, you know, it's as fast as possible. It's great for everybody. What's wrong? Well, well how, how, don't throttle it. How fast is it? Oh, yeah, it's fast. What do you want to do? I, I, I don't know. I just want to know a number. Can you give me a number that I can, like, test and verify that I'm getting it? Nah, what do you want? It's as fast as possible. I don't like that. <laughs> the, the other thing is that quality of service and packet shaping occur on large networks all the time. They occur on small networks. They occur on, they occur on intranets. Pa- uh, uh, prioritization and, and traffic management, which is basically what net neutrality is on the large scale, is – or again, sorry – the non-net neutrality world on the large scale, I don't really see too much of a difference when you look at it like that. Like, if you're at a hospital and some idiot is watching Netflix, you want to prioritize that traffic lower than the instruments that you're using to talk to other instruments across your local network. So you need... Yeah, sounds like a systems admin for your whole hospital. Well, you need yes. Hospitals have that. Hospitals have IT people. They have servers. They have racks of servers. They have yeah, but that's not how your normal internet should work. But what if the hospital wanted to pay for prioritized access so they could, you know, operate on people, get then better get internet access than you can at home? Team. What? Then, the, then they should hire a tech team to make that happen in their own infrastructure. But if throttling traffic is illegal then you, they can't pay for any faster internet access, can they? They can't get faster than you can get than the, than the guy living next to them because... Who said throttling, throttling your own private traffic that of... No, I'm saying if the hospital wanted to pay for faster access to the internet or prioritize access to the internet because they're a hospital versus a residence, can they do it? Right now they can. No, you just buy a bigger internet package. That's... I don't... Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is because uh, can you just get a faster speed? Do, does does that does that faster speed actually translate into better access when you find out that these companies haven't been upgrading their infrastructure like they need to that like like they should have been? I don't know. Yeah, you like pay for sure they have like a big old agreement. They have to pay for like more actual connection, hard connections to the ground and stuff, more Ethernet ports, more all that stuff. I don't know. This would be a good one for Christian, but write your congressperson. Call your senator and say that, you, that uh, you, you want net neutrality and you want to preserve the integrity of traffic on the Internet and you don't want the big boys uh, getting priority and creating a new Internet for them. Because that's basically what's happening. So, yep. And, like I said, if, uh, they can, if Comcast enters an area and they say, you know, for $10 a month you can stay on these five services and they do some anal- an- analyzation to find out, analysis, sorry, uh, to find out what websites people are actually using, uh, and they offer some very bare-bones package for the most mainstream content, and they can possibly drive out the mom-and-pop industries with an extremely low entry-level starter package. I don't know. Certainly. I, this is it, it'll be very interesting, but I don't see, I don't see, I don't see the Title II restrictions staying. I don't see the government regulation that you shouldn't discriminate on traffic staying. 
and just because of my pessimism with how uh, politics have gone so far. I totally understand your sentiment, and we can only hope but stay positive. Yeah. Okay, now let's move into the main topic for our show today. It's... Accessibility. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to. Or, or more, we can talk more about my Florida trip, but that's really not that interesting. Uh, other than it reminded me why I don't live there anymore. <clears throat> Accessibility, or Internet for All, is a way of developing a web page or web application. And this is really specific to the Internet, or web, web development. Um, accessibility on in the hold hands by everyone a coke philosophy is everyone should be able to access every page on the internet no matter their disabilities or abilities or cognitive impairments or whatever and that's fine but on the flip side as we've talked about those types of things can create a bureaucracy that manages the types of compliance and then that compliance imposes a cost on the person running the website which could be a small business and the cost of accessibility accessibility sorry might kill the business so it's another equilibrium equation. It's another you know, tug of war between bureaucracies that want – and I totally – anyone has the right to you know, uh, access whatever web page that they want. But if, it's, if there's a web page that isn't accessible for their screen reader or isn't generally accessible, should they be able to sue the developer? I'm going to say no. So all of this stuff, uh, all of the accessibility stuff – is bureaucratically managed by two organizations, or actually more than two organizations. There's one umbrella organization, the W3C, and then the other or- giant organization is the U.S. government with the Americans with Disabilities Act. With the ADA, it came out in 1990, the World Wide Web started in 1992. The ADA has a specification and rules for public places, and so the Department of Justice was supposed to outline rules for an accessible Internet, last year and they didn't they're going to wait until next year to do it and because they don't exactly know how to set the guidelines for what exactly a usable interface is for whatever impairment somebody has and then if you're if once they have those guidelines you have to follow those rules or else you could be sued here's an example of getting sued uc berkeley which i like them less after the they let their stuff on fire um have to remove 20,000 free videos after DOJ ruling. It's a closed captioning complaint. It's from the Washington Times. Roughly 20,000 free educational videos provided by the University of California at Berkeley are being taken off the Internet because they do not have closed captioning. A complaint filed with the Department of Justice by two employees at Gallaudet University in D.C. So it's employees at a university in D.C. filed a complaint with the DOJ about... UC Berkeley, on the other side of the country, claimed the school's webcast.berkeley videos, which were free and publicly accessible, were in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Federal officials sided with the complaints in August before issuing an ultimatum, colon, fix the videos or make them privately accessible to students. Quote, this move also partially addresses recent findings by the DOJ, which, suge- which suggests that the YouTube and iTunes U content meet higher accessibility standards as a condition of remaining publicly available, Ms. Koshlin said. 
Finally, moving our content behind authentication allows us to better protect instructor intellectual property from, quote, pirates who have reused content for personal profit without consent. And she mentioned that updating 20,000 videos would be very, very expensive and unwise in an environment of substantial budget deficits and shrinking state financial support. Yeah, I could... You and me could probably get those videos updated with closed captioning in like a day and a half. That wouldn't twenty thousand videos. It wouldn't be good. It would be like running it through the the Google speech to text thing. Yeah, it'd be fine. It'd be ninety five percent accurate. No, and and encoding closed captioning, I think, also because of the timing, is is difficult. I could see a, a large expense in that. Um, but I have to say, even as someone that isn't blind, deaf, or dumb, those, a lot of Facebook videos on the news feed uh, and a lot of other videos, uh, I never really have sound on my computer. And so I, I always end up reading the subtitles. And, when, and I, whenever I come across a video that doesn't have the subtitles, that actually does hurt because so, it's so nice to have them. And it, there is a large cost. It is time-consuming. It is resource-consuming to do. And I really appreciate it, even as someone that doesn't need it. But... At the same time, this university is providing a service. It's trying to help people out with their knowledge. And they're getting sued by these ingrates at some other university that say that, oh, you're giving us this free content that we could actually use in our classes without citing you. That's fantastic. But we're going to sue you because these aren't closed captioned, even though we don't need the closed captions. It's not good enough. You're in trouble. Exactly. Exactly. UC Berkeley didn't have to do this. They didn't have to make their lectures publicly available. That was a very nice thing that they did to democratize the knowledge that would come at a large price. Yeah. Fantastic. And now they're getting sued. It's like if you give a homeless person something and then he gets sick and sues you. <laughs> Can I have some food? Yeah, okay, here. Oh, oh I feel terrible. I'm going to sue you. Um, whatever. This is going to present a bigger and bigger problem as time goes on, as people, uh, I'm not going to say as people get more disabilities, but as more disabilities become known and more issues with websites become known, and the government will eventually dictate uh, an accessible UI, which may ruin everything I've ever made. Because if I now have to, I mean, think about the design battles that I have with Christian and the other design battles that I have at work. Now, if I also have to be compliant with it and trying to make an innovative user interface, and then combine that with the government's probably horrible boilerplate design for an accessible website that everyone's going to have to adhere to for the first few years, it's going to be a mess. <laughs> it's going to be a mess. So I want to talk quickly about the ADA and quickly about how it relates to the Internet as I'm losing my energy because it's 1130. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting there too. Yeah, um... Let's uh, speed this up. By way of background, that was a good article. By way of background, the ADA requires that places of public accommodation be accessible to the to the to the to the disabled. Most businesses—that's ironic. I can't talk while saying to the disabled. Most businesses operating from some form or physical facility open to the public understand their obligations to make those physical facilities possible. That's also, by the way, why they've uh, closed a few subway exits is because if they had more, there's some regulation that if they had a certain, like if they had certain st- stations, if they had all the exits open, they'd have to be ADA compliant, which would cost too much money. So they're just leaving them closed. Huh. Public 
it, and all the news stations are ADA compliant. That's part of the reason why they take so long and they cost so much. Um, public accommodations are generally businesses that are open to the public and fall into one of 12 categories listed in the ADA, such as, and it goes to list, retail stores, restaurants, hotels, theaters, doctors, offices, pharmacies, museums, libraries, parks, private schools, and daycare centers. Disabled persons can sue under the ADA alleging that they were denied full and equal access to the goods and services at a place of public accommodation. The DOJ can file suit for alleged ADA violations. There is a set of very specific, largely objective criteria for accessibility of physical locations. Physical. However, in 2006, private litigants in the DOJ began filing or threatening to file legal action based on allegedly inaccessible websites, and eventually also including mobile applications. This law is unsettled on whether websites and mobile apps are places of public accommodation under the ADA. Some courts have held that they are. Others have ruled otherwise. Hmm. Only time Even will tell. If, sorry? Only time will tell. Yeah. Even if a website is a public place of accommodation, place of public accommodation, the standard for what is accessible under the ADA is also unsettled. There's no current law or regulation defining what is required. There are voluntary guidelines developed by the W3C, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, and the most recent version is in the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, WCAG 2.0. But even within WCAG 2, there are degrees of accessibility. A, AA, and AAA. No B minuses. Well, uh, the, the ironic part about this whole process is that basically the people with the worst accessible websites are the government. Yeah, isn't that ironic? So they're going to be the ones screwing up. They're going to make all these rules and it's like, Damn, all well, and, websites and, and, have to be changed now. Well, that's good. If, I mean, you know, the government. Uh, I, I think there's. A, if you want to make some government money, this may this might be a great way to do it. And they used to say the government doesn't pay well, but they, you have great benefits now. Just suck out all the money that you can. Think about those IT people that were working for the DNC. They they were way overpaid for what they did. Oh yeah. So, um, okay. At the most basic level. Level, an accessible website would have these and other accessible elements. It provides text alternatives for any non-text content. It provides alternatives for time-based media. It includes content that can be presented in different ways without losing information or structure. It is easy to see and hear, including separating foreground from background. Good luck. That's, that means high contrast, by the way. That means everything has to be high contrast. Permits all functionality from a keyboard if needed, as, a pro, as opposed to a cursor. Permits sufficient time to read and use content. Is not designated in a way to know, uh, that is known to cause seizures like strobe bike lights. And includes a way to, for users to help navigate, find content, and determine where they are. Includes text content that is readable and understandable. Operates and appears in predictable ways. Helps users avoid and correct mistakes. And is compatible with current and future user agents including assistive web technologies. Hmm. Yep. So I remember I was a uh, I was a web developer for my college, and I actually walked by the University of Central Florida while I was visiting Orlando, and I was a, I was a web dev- uh, web developer for them uh, my senior year in college, and we had to make all of our websites ADA accessible, and now all of the text, all of the images had to have some ARIA attribute. And we'll talk about that in a second. 
And we had to really, and there were, there were some limitations on what we can do because of accessibility and because it was a government, it was a state-run organization, we had to follow those rules. I was still able to make a cool website, but I feel like that was a very microcosmic example. That's not something that's coming down from the federal government that everyone has to, uh, that everyone has to comply with. So I think if when it's implemented on a national scale, it'll be much more arduous. But sure. um, here's an article from The Guardian called The High Cost of Digital Discrimination, Why Companies Should Care About Web Accessibility. Every few months, a new lawsuit involving Internet accessibility pops up. And this is from 2015. In November 2015, a legally blind man sued the National Basketball Association. I guess because it's it's British, they can't say NBA, I don't know. Uh, Claiming its website did not accommodate the visually impaired. How they can watch a basketball game, whatever. Uh, (laughs) Now there's commentators. Uh, Over the summer, I mean, my dad used to listen to football games on the radio, and I have no idea how he figured that out, but he did. He would love to listen to football games. They have no idea how he could pay attention. I remember that. Uh, over the summer, a cruise operator at Carnival Corps paid to, uh, agreed to pay 405000 in damages and penalties in a settlement with the U.S. Department of Justice over a variety of accessibility issues, including ones with its website and apps, not Carnival Cruises or the Carnival Cruise Lines. A 2011 survey by the Pew Research Center found that 2%, or 4.7 million American adults, said they saw—2% doesn't sound like a lot, but when you say the number— it does, said yeah. they suffered from a disability or illness that made it difficult to uh, impossible for them to use the internet, like they're a Democrat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not politics. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm a Democrat. I had to register. But anyway, uh, for a growing number of, com- of companies that inaccessibility comes at a cost, the US DOJ, siding with the ADA, has sued the negotiated millions of do- and negotiated millions of dollars in settlements with big brands such as Target, Disney, and Netflix for not designing their websites to accommodate the browsing needs of disabled customers. But while they've launched these suits, they've yet to come out with actual real guidelines for all of us to file. They just want you to make a mistake, and then once you make a mistake, ah, we'll sue you. Hmm. It's not subjective right now. Yeah. So I and this is a. Uh, and, uh, you know, I guess when the DOJ sues someone like Disney, that's kind of analogous to when the EU sues Google. The government just needs money. They found a way to get some. Yeah. Let's get some of that internet money. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's move on to web accessibility. Now, this comes from the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, version 2. Well, actually, before we go that uh, go to that, let's talk about... The Web Accessibility Initiative, that's, that's the WA, there's a lot, this is an acronym soup episode. It's the WAI, which is part of W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium, Tim Berners-Lee. Web Accessibility is a W3C project that was conceived in the fall of 1996 at the initiative of a few individuals from the W3C staff and with early enthusiast support of a much larger expert community. It took about nine years, or sorry, nine months to exist. From Tim Berners-Lee, the emergence of the world won't do the accent. The emergence of the World Wide Web has made it possible for individuals with the appropriate computer and telecommunications equipment to interact as never before. It presents new challenges and hopes to and hopes to people with disabilities. As part of its commitment to realize the full potential of the web, the consortium has recently been promoting a high degree of usability for disabled people by following the development and encourage an ongoing discussion in the area. This limited development has has been host has been to host a catalog uh, sorry 
This limited development has been to host as a catalytic nucleus that the disabilities page linked to from our homepage. .w3c. Thanks, Michael G. Passiello, for his efforts in maintaining this page. Um, yeah, so the WAI, the Web Accessibility Initiative, started from the W3C, and they have created web content accessibility guidelines, and the latest ones came out in 2008. And they describe guidelines to make a website usable. So the first one, there are three major guidelines. It must be perceivable. Sorry, four. It must be perceivable. It must be operable. It must be understandable. And it must be robust. Does that sound... Robust. What does that mean? Robust. Perceivable. It's not coffee. No. That's robusto. Uh... (laughs) Like pasta sauce. Uh, Perceivable. Provide text alternatives for any non-text content so it can be changed into other forms people need, such as large print, braille, speech, or symbols. Provide alternatives for time-based media, which we already talked about. Create content that can be presented in different ways. For example, simpler layout without losing information or structure. Well, if that's the case, then just make it smaller. (laughs) Make it easier for users to see and hear. Okay. Including separating foreground from background. Now... That's one that I, it's, it's really hard, it's, it's, really, it's really hard to figure out what they want, because they talk about the use of color, color is not, a color is not used as the only visual means of conveying information, indicating an action, prompting a response, or distinguishing a visual co- element, level A. Like, you know, a link, because it's both highlighted and underlined, so that's not just color. Audio control. If any audio on a web page plays automatically for more than three seconds, either a mechanism is available to pause or stop the audio, or a mechanism is available to control audio volume independently from the overall system volume level. Contrast. This is what I was talking about. Uh, and th- Now, the vi- visual presentation of text and images of text has a contrast ratio of at least 4.5 to 1, and I don't really know how to measure that. Except for large text, which should have at least three to one. Incidental, which is text or images that are part of an interactive user interface component that are pure decoration. Or logo types that have no minimum contrast requirement. Thank also you. on that contrast, it, that, tr- that rule is generally broken. Yeah, it's broken. But this is, one of those th- this is one of those things that you have to do. That Probably, if the DOJ does make real guidelines, that you'll have to do. Yeah, Apple has their own guidelines for that, which they also break. And this might be, and I'm sure Google has their own guidelines, which they've broken, and that's why no one has some real guidelines yet, because even the people that make the guidelines aren't following them. Yep. Resize text. You have to have the ability to resize the text, even though Apple Plus will do that for you. Um, Images of text. If the technologies being used can achieve visual presentation, text is used to convey information rather than images of text, except for the following. Whether the text has been visually customized or whether the picture of text is essential to the information being conveyed, like a logo type, is considered essential text as image. The visual present contrast enhanced, and I'm just drilling down to this section because this is really where a lot of the stuff is. Uh, The visual presentation of text and images of text has a contrast ratio of 7 to 1 for enhanced contrast. This This is the triple A. Large text has at least 4.5 to 1 instead of 3 to 1. Incidental text uh, have no contrast requirement, and logo types have no contrast requirement, which is good. Uh, let's see. 
Low or no background audio. For pre-recorded audio-only content that has, that one, contains primarily speech in the foreground, two, is not an audio captcha or audio logo, and three, is not a vocalization intended to be the primary musical expression such as singing or rapping, <laughs> has at least, at least one of the following is true for a triple A grade. No background, you turn it off, or the background sounds are at least 20 decibels lower than the foreground speech content, with the exception of occasional sounds that last for one of two seconds. One or two seconds. So it's kind of like us. We could be great double A. Uh, I, I, I think double A, or even single A, might be, might be where you want. Triple A's got to be way too much. Uh, but you know what? I bet that you could really, as a, as a uh, thriving freelance developer, I bet that you could charge so much money for this type of compliance. And this is what I'm talking about. Everybody makes money off of compliance at the service level, and that hurts business. Because the business has to pay for it. Yep. Uh, visual presentation. For the visual presentation of blocks of text, a mechanism, text, a mechanism is available to achieve the following. Foreground and background colors can be selected by the user... In the in this in the system preferences or in the preferences for your browser they can be, width is no more than eighty characters per line. Text is not justified. Line spacing or letting is at least a space and a half within paragraphs, and paragraph spacing is at least one point five times larger than the line spacing. Text can be resized without assistive technology up to two hundred percent in a way that does not require the user to scroll horizontally to read a line of text on a full screen window. And lastly, images of text, no exception. Images of text are only used for pure decoration when a particular presentation of text is essential to the information being conveyed for the, your AAA. That makes sense. Um, and then the other guidelines are, I, I think they're less, less arduous. Make all, functionality, make all functionality available from the keyboard. I would, you know, that would be nice. Provide users enough time to read and use content. Do not design content in a way that is known to cause seizures. Provide ways to help users navigate, find content, and determine where they are. And then, understandable. Make text content readable and understandable. Make web pages appear and operate in predictable ways, which means the same use patterns. Uh, help, use, help users avoid and correct mistakes. And robust. Maximize compatibility with current and future user agents. I think that list that we read was copied from this website, actually. Um, yeah. And that's... Um... And those are the guidelines set out by, by the W3C on how to create an accessible web site or web application. Now, in addition to that, there is something known as ARIA, which is well, accessible, rich internet applications. But before we get to that, let's take a break. Uh, what is it? Is it... This one? Say, friends, do you live in New York City? Well, if you do, Pneumonium has a beautiful new product for you. It's called Where Am I? Your five ball compass navigator to help you get anywhere from Staten Island to the Bronx. Just go to www.whereami.nyc and enable location services on your mobile device to find the closest neighborhood, borough, and subway, three subway stops to you, wherever you are. Just sit back, relax, and let Where Am I tell you everything, everywhere you need to go. That was an improvised line. So go to Where Am I? No ads, no tracking, just geospatial brilliance provided by Pneumonium. I should have wrote this, wrote this down last time. Ah. Uh, 
That was bad. I'm sorry, Tyler. We'll forgive you. Uh, and this is what happens. You take a whole week off. The music's still playing. This is what happens. You take a whole week off, and uh, you forget the you forget your lines. Oh. And I have them written down, but I thought just like with the intro that I'd memorized it, and then I realized when I got to the end of it, I didn't remember the last three lines. Oops. So, yes. Where am I? That NYC and it works. Please go. No ads or tracking. We don't use Google products. It's completely concealed within my website. Okay. Let's talk about... Uh, what, what was it? Accessible, rich internet applications known as ARIA. Which are basically just HTML attributes. Uh, but, uh, which uh, we'll get to. HTML5 introduced a number of semantic elements to define common page features, nav, footer, etc. But before these were available, developers would simply use divs with IDs or classes. But these were problematic, as there was no easy way to find a specific page feature such as the main navigation programmatically. The initial solution was to add one or more hidden links to the top of the page to link to the navigation or wherever else. For example, then it goes A, href equals hash hidden, class equals hidden, skip to navigation. This is still very not, uh, not very precise and can only be used when the screen reader is reading the top of the page. As another example, apps started to feature complex controls like date pickers for choosing dates and sliders for choosing values. As an example, HTML5 provides special input types to render such controls, like input type equals date or input type equals range. These are not well, very well supported across browsers, and it is also quite difficult to style them, making them not very useful for integrating with website designs. As a result, developers often quite, rely, uh, sorry, quite often rely on JavaScript libraries that generate such controls as a series of nested divs or table elements with class names, which are then styled using CSS and controlled using JavaScript. The problem here is that vi while visually they work, screen readers can't make any sense of, of what they are at all. And their users just get told that they see a jumble of elements with no semantics of how to describe what they mean. Enter WAI-ARIA is a specification written by the W3C and the Web Accessibility Initiative we just talked about, the WAI. Defining a set of additional HTML attributes, like I said, that can be applied to elements or provide additional semantics and improve accessibility whenever, wherever it is lacking. There are three main features defined in this spec. Roles, properties, and states. Hold on one second. I just have to make sure... Okay. I just had to make sure we were still recording. Something... Uh, jog my memory. Anyway. Uh, roles. These define what is an element or what an element is or does. Many of these are so-called landmark roles, which, are largely which largely duplicate the semantic value of HTML5 structural elements, like role equals navigation, which is equivalent to the nav tag, or... Role equals complementary, which is equivalent to the aside tag. Uh, there are also others that describe different page structures, such as role equals banner, role equals search, role equals tab group, role equals tab, etc., which are commonly found in UIs. Properties define properties of elements, and you can use aria required equals true to form an in for a form input element that needs to be filled in to be valid, whereas aria dash labeled two L's by, or three L's, so it's aria-l-a-b-e-l-l-e-d-b-y equals label allows you to put an ID on an element, then reference it as being the label for anything else on the page, including multiple elements, which is not possible during using the label tag for input. 
As an example, you can use an ARIA labeled by uh, attribute to specify that a key description contained in a div is the label for multiple table cells. Or you could use it as an alternative to image alt text. Specify existing, in, uh, specify existing information on the page as an image's alt text rather than having to repeat it inside the alt attribute. You can see an example of this in, at text alternatives, and they link to a page. States. Special properties that define the current condition of elements, such as aria disabled equals true, which specifies to a screen re reader that a form input is currently disabled. States differ from properties, much like in React, in that the properties don't change throughout the lifecycle of an app, whereas states can change generally programmatically via JavaScript. An important point about the WAI ARIA attributes is that they don't affect anything about the web page itself, except for the information exposed by the browser's ability accessibility APIs, where screen readers get their information from. WAI ARIA doesn't affect web page structure, the DOM, etc., although the attributes can be useful for selecting elements by CSS. Where is it supported? Uh... It is not an easy question to answer. Thanks, Mozilla. It is difficult to find the conclusive resource that states what features of WAI ARIA are supported and where, because one, there are a lot of features, and two, there are many combinations of operating system, browser, and screen reader to consider. Operating system, browser support is generally quite good. Screen reader support is not quite at the same level as browser support, so the screen readers need to step up. When should you use WAI ARIA? One, signpost landmarks, or signpost slash landmarks. Uh, ARIA's role attributes can act as landmarks that either replicate the semantics of HTML5 elements or go beyond HTML5 semantics to pro provide signposts for different functional areas, such as search, tab group, tab, list box, etc. Dynamic content updates, enhancing keyboard accessibility, and accessibility of non-semantic controls. Like, when a series of nested divs along with CSS JavaScript is used to create a complex UI feature, or a native control is greatly enhanced or changed via JavaScript, accessibility can suffer. Screen readers' users will find it difficult to work out what the feature does, even if there are no semantics or other clues. In these situations, ARIA can help pro uh, to provide what's missing with a combination of roles, like button, list box, or tab group, and properties like ARIA required or ARIA posin net. You know, they, they didn't actually list all of the ARIA attributes. They just said there's a lot of them, and then throughout the article, they just kind of use them implicitly. There's ARIA Live. I think we're fine with that. We ARIA PosinNet. A lot of these ARIA dash stuff. If you've ever looked at WordPress, WordPress is very accessible because all of their default themes have that ARIA stuff built right in. Mozilla does have an example of how to properly implement WAI ARIA, and I would suggest that if you'd like more information, go to their website or just Google it. Um, Aria sleep tag soon. Yeah. I think... I think that's all we have for accessibility. So, I've got one last story for you, Tyler. And then oh, we can yeah. call it quits. It's from a WordPress site, my favorite. Excuse me. 24-core uh, CPU and I can't move my mouse. This story begins as often as they do when I noticed that my machine was behaving poorly. My Windows 10, there's your answer, work machine had 24 cores with 48 hyperthreads, and they were 50% idle. It had 64 gigs of RAM, and that was less than half used. 
It has a fast SSD that was mostly idle. And yet, as I moved the mouse around, it kept hitching, sometimes locking up for seconds at a time. So I did what I always do. I grabbed an ETW trace and analyzed it. The result was the discovery of a serious process destruction performance bug in Windows 10. The ETW trace, which Christian would know what that is, showed UI hangs in multiple programs. I decided to investigate a 1.125118 second hang in Task Manager. You know, Windows, I think, has had this problem for a long time where stuff just stops responding. Uh, in the image below, which we're not, you can't say over the air, uh, you can see the CPU usage for the system t uh, during the hang, grouped by the process name. Notice that the CPU usage totally, rarely goes above 50%. Right. Uh, the CPU usage table showed that the task manager's UI thread was reportedly, repeatedly blocked on calls to functions like send message W, apparently waiting on a kernel critical region uh, deep in the call stack. Interesting. I manually followed the, chain, the wait chain through a half dozen processes to see who was hogging the lock. My notes from the analysis looked something like this, and he traces them. I had to keep going because most of the processes were releasing the lock after holding it for just a few microseconds. And then keep going. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Actually, I'm just gonna, I should just skip to the end. Process. Pro uh, let's see. I'm really sorry. Anytime you have a look, anytime you have a lock that is held more than 95% of the time by one function, you are in a very bad place. Especially if that same lock must be acquired in order to call a get message or update the mouse position. In order to experiment better, I wrote a test program that creates a thousand processes as quickly as possible, waits half a second, then tells all the processes to exit simultaneously. The CPU usage of, the, of this test program on my four-core, four eight-thread home laptop, grouped by process name, can be shown below in the screenshot. Well, what do you know? Process creation is CPU-bound, as it should be. Process shutdown, however, is CPU-bound at the beginning and at the end, but there is a long period in the middle, about a second, where, is, where it is serialized, using just one of the eight hyper-threads on the system, as 1,000 processes fight over a single lock inside of the NT-GDI closed process. This is a serious problem. This period represents a time when programs will hang and mouse movements will hitch, and sometimes the serialized period takes several seconds longer. I've noticed this, this problem seems to be worse when my computer has been running for a while, so I rebooted and, and ran the test as soon as my laptop has settled down. The process shutdown serialization is indeed less severe, but the issue is still clearly present on the freshly rebooted machine. So, uh, Amdahl's Law says that if you throw enough cores at your problem, then the parts that cannot be parallelized will, aven parallelized will eventually dominate execution. When my work machine has been heavily used for a few days, this serialization issue gets bad enough that process shutdown becomes a significant part of my distributed build times. And more cores can't help with that. In order to get maximum build speeds, and if I want to move my mouse while it builds, I need to reboot, I need to reboot my machine every few days. Even then, my build speeds are not as fast as they should be, and Windows 7 starts to look tempting. In fact, adding more cores to my workstation makes the UI less responsive. 
That's because Chrome's build system is smart enough to spawn more processes if you have more cores, which means that there are more terminating processes to fighting over the one global lock. So it's not just 24-core CPU and I can't move my mouse. It's 24-core CPU and therefore I can't move my mouse. And this problem has been reported to Microsoft and they're still investigating. This was from a week ago. Nice. So... They found a very interesting problem in Windows, which is that Windows is Windows, and it will continue to disappoint you no matter what. So, on that nice note, it's time to end. So, Tyler, do you approve of this week's pull request? Looks good to me. Well, fantastic, and I hope that Christian likes it, because I'm going to hit merge. And we'll see you all next week, right here on Pull Request. This has been a Pneumonium production. The views and opinions expressed on Pull Request do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries. This week's theme music provided by Wolfpack. Visit them at VULFPECK.com.